This is Strange Assembly, episode 121, The One-Two Box. I am Chris Stevenson. Here with me today is Jay Earl. Hello. And this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast today. Jay and I are going to take a look over what will probably be seven games that have come out recently and that we have played recently, although we may be using the word come out recently a little loosely in, in the case of, of one of them. One of the games, uh, 12 Realms, I've, I've given for the episode title because I'm an obnoxious father, and so I found it very cute that my, my son Benjamin, who's three, would see the box for 12 realms and call it the 1-2 box because it has a big giant 12 on it. Mm. So there you go. That may or may not be your only uh, annoying child story today, but uh, probably not. But we'll find out. The first game that we're going to talk about is Canalis. Canalis is the fifth game in the Tempest series. The first four came out uh, last year at Gen Con, and uh, the first four were Dominar, Mercante, Courtier, and Love Letter, which, of course, was not originally designed as a Tempest game, got reskinned after the original Japanese release. So I was pretty excited to hear about Canalis because I really liked the original launch of Tempest games out of four games I, I really like three of them, uh, and, and Love Letter is just fantastic. So I was excited to to see a, a fifth one coming out. Now, on the downside, sorry, Phil, but the designer of Canalis, it was the designer of the one of the Courtier games, uh, uh, the one of the Tempest games, Courtier, that I was not so taken with. So uh, let's, you know, see how that worked out, I guess. Canalis is a card drafting and tile laying game each player it represents one of the factions in the city of tempest as they are working to build up a new area of land that i i think it's supposed to have been wiped out by uh like all the brush has been cleared out by a tempest you know storm of some sort whatever you have a square of land on two sides are harbors on two sides are resources. There's three resources on each side. It's randomly placed where they are. And you are trying to place industrial buildings out such that they are both connected to a harbor and connected to a resource and connected to workers, thus letting you score the building and generate points. You are a particular faction, which will give you a little bit of a bent as far as how you're doing that, it'll give you an ability, it'll give you uh, an extra way of getting victory points at the end. You also have a couple of mission cards that give you another couple ways of getting bonus points. But the way that you lay the tiles, the canals and the gardens and the buildings that will form this new district of Tempest is with a, a card draft. The number of cards that you have and, and how often you'll be passing them around depends on the number of players, but... Uh, basically, you'll start with you know four, five, seven cards in your hand, and you pick one, and then the first player, everybody picks their card, the first player reveals their card, and every card has two options on it. You can build, 
which is going to be to lay a tile down. Most of them are specific tiles, like it'll be lay a four-length canal, or lay a three-length canal, or lay the the tailor down, or, or or things like that. Or you can pick a scheme. The schemes might affect your victory points. They might give you an extra use of an abil- of your faction ability. They might give you gold coins, which you need to pay for most of the buildings. So the, the first player resolves their card, then the second player flips up their card, resolves it, and so on. After that's done, you pass the first player marker to the left, and everybody picks up the stack of cards that was that's coming from the player to the left. Again, you draft one, put it down. You go through this for four rounds. The first two rounds use the same deck, and that deck tends to be playing out. Uh, you're playing out the tenements that provide workers. You're playing out canals. You're playing out gardens. You're playing out small buildings. The third and fourth rounds tend to uh, be ways to play bigger buildings. There's still some canals. The cards that let you play out the last two resources, there are actually eight resources. Six of them start on the board. Two of them don't. In fact, the two that don't start on the board will probably never come out. And then you just progress like that at the end of four rounds. Whoever has the most victory points wins. You start at 10, and you can get up above 100, you start with some victory points so you can have effects that give you money to lose victory points. Am I leaving out anything there mechanically, Jay? I think you covered everything. So so what did I, I think about it? I liked it. I don't think it was great. It's it's very uh, different. And I guess I should note that I have avoided playing with two-player because it seems like it might be painfully... Analysis paralysis inducing with two players, the way you'd be passing the cards back and forth, and you'd be able to sit there and look and know exactly, like, okay, so every card I pass, my one opponent's gonna get, and I know I'm gonna get the other five of these back, and, so we've just done, done three and four, but it, it develops a, a little oddly because whenever I've played, and I've played with uh, different groups too, the resources get cut off very quickly. Now, that's not as bad as you might think in a normal game because nobody is tied down to a resource, right? If a resource gets cut off, you just don't play cards that put down buildings that need that resource. But it makes the end of the game kind of odd because especially in the last round, you get to the last round of the game and you... There's nothing to build, yeah. Yeah, that there's if you have one of the cards that builds one of the special buildings that so like the industrial buildings have to be linked up, the special buildings just sort of happen. So the Senate just gives you twelve victory points. And there's other ones like the refuse dump that might penalize people you put it next to and then get you victory points for being connected to things later on. But it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be connected to any specific. Those could be worth it. But yeah, at the end it's just sort of I'll take some money and victory points, I'll take some money and victory points, I'll I'll try to put down a garden so that it's next to one of my scored buildings so I get another point, but it doesn't have the same sort of, of build-up, and the strategy is is very different from what you might think it is because, again, it's not... You're not sitting down at the beginning of the game thinking, oh, I'm building to getting... Or at least you shouldn't be, I don't think. I'm building towards getting this particular building. You may never get a card that lets you play that building, and there's a good chance that that the resources that that building needs will be completely cut off long before you get the chance to get it. So 
there's a lot of just very tactical at the beginning trying to to get yourself to be the only tenement that's connected to the water so that where people are trying to play buildings. So it, it doesn't have the sort of, I don't know, scope that I'd, I'd think in the ending is a little anticlimactic. Uh, but you've played it, Jay. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, talking about that, I, I almost feel like you're quote unquote supposed to early rounds go more strategy get more gold set up and build later. But I also feel like if you're the only one doing that, you'll be hosed because everyone else will just land grab out from under you. So I don't know. Yeah. That was, that was sort of my experience was we get to the end of round three and I'm like, Oh, that was a fun game. The board's fairly filled up and Oh, there's another round to go. I have no idea what we're doing there. Cause there's nowhere to put anything anymore. It, yeah, and actually, I yeah, I played it with the first group, and I thought, well, maybe we were doing something wrong, and then and then we we played it with with uh with our group, with everybody that included UJ, and I thought, well, this this kind of ended the same way again, but let me check, and I've and I, well, maybe we're just completely missing something, but then I've I've listened to other people talk about it and said the same sort of thing where the fourth round, it, it, you can't, it, it ends up weirdly, you can't do any different. So, right, I mean, again, I I sort of feel like the designers wanted you to do that but it becomes sort of a a, a nuclear winter of her no no that, that i think that's a reasonable comparison right we're we're just you know if anybody starts land grabbing it stops being a viable strategy because sure you're set up for the late game but the late game doesn't exist because the board's already full uh, yeah, or you you do all sorts of planning, and then somebody's just like, "Oh, I drop a building in front of this resource." I mean, what it, it frequently seemed to be is, "Oh, I have a building that requires fabric or something," or "I have a card that lets me play a building that requires fabric." So when I drop that building, yeah, I'm gonna drop it so I'm the only one who gets fabric. Well, especially because when you drop it right next to the fabric, not only is it blocking anyone else from getting fabric, but that establishes your connection. Now, no one else can block block you from getting to the fabric so yeah it, it feels like the designer is thinking that you're going to so it, it feels like the designer pictured this or wanted you to to spend the early game setting up networks so that people can connect around and arrange things but it just never seems to happen yeah know. it doesn't seem to be the correct strategic call okay so that was Canalis by uh, Philip Duberry, a part of the Tempest series from Alderac Entertainment Group. Now, our next game actually is also from AEG, so why don't you tell us about Cheaty Mages, Jay? So Cheaty Mages is a game where the, the conceit is you're a bunch of mages who are spectating some sort of no-holds-barred fight and wagering on the fight. And you're cheating because you know you're sort of helping the contestants involved. The the obvious comparison, I believe, the Colossal Arena is the game that's similar to that, where you have some number of competitors involved and you make bets and then you try to influence who actually wins. Here you're doing it by casting spells, either by you know you fireball the dragon so it's weaker. Or you cast a healing spell so it's stronger. And, of course, while you're doing all this, there is a judge. 
and the judge will have some effect on what your what cards you're allowed to play to affect it and if you do too much to any one of the contenders they might just kick them out so you have to be careful not to boost your chosen favorite too much but um you do three rounds of betting and spell slinging and then whoever's bets paid off the most wins yeah i i think i agree with you that yeah the colossal arena which was itself a retheming of grand national derby is a uh by Reiner Knizia, is a good comparison. And Colossal Arena is a game that I I really like. I, and, and it's especially handy for me because I like Colossal Arena, and also gamers like Colossal Arena and non-gamers like Colossal Arena. So, or at least the ones that I, I've been able to play it with with ones who don't. So, so that works really well for me. Unfortunately for me, Cheaty Mages thematically like it's supposed to have a much more lighthearted element, I think, than Colossal Arena, which Right, Colossal Arena, it's a Reiner Knizia game, it's, you know, mathy. And I guess Cheaty Mages does have more of a random element, it feels like, and there are things that are more swingy, but its its feel doesn't take it far enough away from Colossal Arena, and the possibility of swingy things can also contribute to the, I think, what ultimately really hampered Cheaty Mages for me, which was, I guess, it's sort of like Canalis, which was the end game, which was that very frequently when I played it, you kind of knew who won or or half the people were eliminated after the first two rounds. Yeah, just the way the betting had gone that whoever is in the lead has such a commanding lead, they can just make a safe bet and lock in and that... Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a, the, the most extreme example, which of I mean, is unlikely to come up, is we had the... The, the monsters basically the they have a base power and so if nobody's interfering with them like you just know this monster is going to win and so you get relatively little if those guys win the bets and you have other monsters you have pretty low power but if if you win then if if they if you bet on them and they win then you get a ton of money and so uh, I you know I played a game where the I think the orc has two power but you get eight coins if you win with that one. And we got a judge that put no limitations in anything, and one of the guys was able to protect him because he got a really good hand, and he ended up with like a plus 12 power card and a uh, and then a card that doubled his value, and then a card that copied the value of another card, and so he copied the double value. So the guy won one round and got 32 coins, and... Yeah, there's no way to catch back up to that. Yeah, I think most of the games the winner ends up with like sixteen, eight to twenty, you know, uh, sixteen to twenty. It's not, but even on a on a less severe example, if you're, if I'm beating you by six going into the last round, it's very hard for you to catch up because I know I can play so conservatively and and still be able to pull out. At that point, you have to go all in on a high value guy and hope that you just you know, got lucky with your last set of pulls. So, which is kind of a shame. I mean, it's it's a it's a small game. It's a light game. So it's not like you have to sink a lot into it. It's by Seiji Kanai, who also did Love Letter. So, but I, I think I will I will stick with Love Letter for my Seiji Kanai game and uh, Colossal Arena for my betting on monsters fighting in an arena game. Our next game for today is uh, the one I mentioned already, 12 Realms. 12 Realms was... Web published actually, I think back in 2010, by Ignacio Correa is the whose name I might be Correo 
might be killing his name. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, it, so yeah, but he went published it in 2010. With the advent of Kickstarter, it got picked up by a publisher called Mage Company, who did a Kickstarter of it. And so the the full box Kickstarter version has now come out. Twelve Realms is a fully cooperative fantasy themed game. You can play it down at solo, or you can play with up to to six. Although you needed some there's some modifications to stop it from killing you because of your lack of versatility as a one-player game. And in the game, each of you is one fantasy hero, and you are defending one through four fantasy realms that are being invaded. And uh, despite the name 12 Realms, there's only four in the the Kickstarter version. I, I don't know if the, the print-and-play version had 12, or but, but this one has four, which is enough. But these are not your generic fantasy heroes. You know, it's not like somebody's a wizard and somebody's a fighter. You've got a lot of fairy tale characters. A lot of them are anthropomorphic. And then there's stuff from the Nutcracker. So you can be, there's Red Riding Hood with a crossbow. There's, I think, Robin Hood is a cat. The Sugar Plum Fairy, uh, Siegfried. And then the four realms. One is a, is a Japanese-themed fantasy realm. One has a bunch of elves. One is a pirate-themed realm for the invaders. And the other one, I think, is basically the Nutcracker-themed realm. Like, you have uh, the mouse you have mouse guards and things like that, but I'm not really fully up on my Christmas ballet, so maybe I'm getting that wrong. And your heroes each have talents. There's charm, and there's fighting, and there's swiftness, and there's money, and then craft. And... What you have to do is every turn, monsters will spawn, and then maybe a treasure will spawn, and maybe uh, an artifact will spawn, and you need to go around, and it, it, it takes swiftness to move around, so everybody's got a good amount of swiftness, and then you have to exploit your, you have to use your talents up to defeat the monsters and pick up the artifacts and get the, the treasures. The treasures give you coins, which some monsters you can buy them off, but they also let you go to town and buy items, which will do you things like give you more repeat-use talents that you they refresh every turn. And so each player takes a turn, and they go around and they use up all their actions, and then you pass around, and then it's the start of a new round, and then more monsters will spawn. At the start of every round, the monsters that are left over from the last round will cause the invasion track to go up. It starts at zero. If it hits 16... The, the dark lord of that's leading that invasion shows up. And, and at that point, you probably need to knock the dark lord off pretty quickly because when it, when the invasion track hits 20 on any of the realms, you lose the game. And the dark lords are relatively hard to beat. And the, what those artifacts do is that the characters that are in a particular space on one of these four realm boards have to have all three of the artifacts to defeat the, the dark lord. It does, pretty well as a co-op game of generating that feel that I think that you want from a co-op game of oh my god we're going to lose, oh my god we're going to lose oh my god we're going to lose, oh oh yeah, phew, we, we beat the Dark Lord now the pressure's off a little bit, now we, we wrap it up and we're, we're, we're done so you, you definitely feel a lot of pressure because sometimes the, the monsters spawn and they, you know one monster will show up and like, oh there's really four of them in that space now and you had to do a lot of planning of of moving around and who has the talents to defeat the monsters and and there's random cards that are showing up so 
maybe the realm that you're in isn't actually having any invaders show up or very many and now you've got to spend time getting over to help out one of the other players before they get overrun in the in the realm they're sort of uh defending some people don't like co-op games cuz there can be a um, one player saying what everyone does and and 12 realms does not have an answer to that so if you've got a group where one person is just going to take over and tell everybody what to do and you really don't like that 12 realms does not have a way of fixing that it's it's definitely a game where that can happen but it had a very i i like the theme it had an interesting thing i think mike especially seemed to like some of the characters it may depend on how cute and endearing and different you find the whole anthropomorphic fairy tale heroes it was nice to see something that was fantasy themed that wasn't just i mean i like D&D and Pathfinder, obviously, and all that stuff, but it, that this one was was different. Oh, what did you think about it, Jay? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, as he said, it has that nice co-op feeling of, oh my god, oh my god, we're all going to die. Wait, how did we pull this one out? That was awesome. <laughs> that, that you want from a co-op game. I felt like coins were really powerful. Yes. And the theme of it just at some level it was weird, because as you said, there's like randomly nutcracker people and Robin Hood is randomly an animal and several of the characters are are animals for no apparent reason, so... <laughs> yes, I, I believe was it you or Mike found it particularly hilarious that Snow White has little woodland creatures with her, and that there are other woodland creatures anthropomorphized helping fight yes that was me <laughs> i find that i still find that hilarious yeah i think that overall that sort of mishmash was a, a plus <laughs> not that that was a theme that i ever would have sat down and and come up with but that's part of the the point of why i like it is that it is something distinctive but yeah i think i think you're right coins felt a little overpowered because there are things that you can do like going to like collect like right treasures the whole point of treasures is that you go there, you perform it, like you have to move there, you take one of your actions, and then you get a coin. But then there are characters that just have coins printed on them as talents. And that's really strong. Like at the start of the game, if you're one of these characters, you just want to be like, well, I'm starting in a town, so I'm going to use one of my swiftest talents to go shopping. And then I'm going to use another swiftest talent to go shopping. And if, if, you immediately start hitting some of the cards that just gives you more repeat use talents, then that can give you a big ramp up. In in fact, I'm I'm in, inclined to think that as much as possible, as much as you can manage early in the game, you want to hit the town up early because if you don't pick up those items in the town that expand your selection of of repeat of, of repeat use talents. You're going to have a hard time beating the Dark Lords. I, I mean, you can, the normal monsters, you gotta take one on one. The Dark Lords, you can, uh. Tag team. Y- you can tag team. Yeah, I, I don't know. So I like that. The one thing I'll note is the rule book in and of itself, there's a few places where it's a little bit unclear, but if you go on Board Game Geek, there is an FAQ that, that helps with that. Well, for example, do you, can't actually tell what the difference between summon and horde is. It's ultimately it's like if it's plus one, it's summon, which means they it brings out a new guy every turn. If it's more than that, it's horde, which means it's a bunch of guys that come in all at once. But uh, they do have an FAQ that clears up that clears that stuff up. And 
there is in the rule book. The iconography isn't always immediately obvious looking at the cards, but the rule book actually does explain what it all does. So there's that. So that was 12 Realms from Mage Company and designed by Ignacio Correo. What do you have up next for us, Jay? So the next one I've got is Coup. It was one I kickstarted earlier this year and it just recently shipped. I do not remember. It's the same company that's done the resistance. It's, it's somewhat set in the same fu- semi futuristic world as the resistance. But basically what's going on, it's a bluffing game. You start the game. There, there's a deck of 15 cards. Three each of five different cards. You start with two of them face down. And once they're both face up, you lose the game. On your action, you could take a, a roll. You could take an action. There are a few actions that you don't have to have a roll for, but most of the actions you have to have a roll to be able to do. And most of them have to do with manipulating money, trying to get money. But the, the big one is, once you get up to seven money, you can just coup someone, they take a damage. They flip one of their two cards. So that's sort of the goal, is to get up enough money to make the other people flip up their their cards, so you win. But there's also some amount of countering some of the actions. That is also tied into rolls. So at any point, you can claim that you have one of one of your two or one face-down cards is the roll. However, you can lie. If you do lie, anyone at the table can challenge you. Well, you, you don't have to lie. <laughs> at, any, at any time you claim a roll, anyone else at the table can challenge you. When there's a challenge, you can either flip one of your cards face up and you lose it. If that was your last one, you're out of the game. Or you can reveal one of your cards to be the roll you just claimed. And the person who challenged you now has to flip one of their cards face up. So, I mean, that's the basic flow of the game is uh, coup everyone else before they get to you and do it by bluffing and catching each other's bluffs. So, I mean, my group, I've we've had a lot of fun with it because we have both the guy who's really not good at bluffing and the guy who is too good at bluffing, and so the interactions between them get hilarious. The, the one problem I've seen is once you get down to three players, often at that point you've sort of got an idea of what people's cards are, and you can just sort of get into a logic game where it's like, oh, yep, that guy's going to win, there's nothing we can do about it. We just have to play out these last couple of turns to prove it. Yeah, Ku is indie boards and cards... Yeah, they did Resistance Avalon. They also did Flashpoint, Fire Rescue. The designer is is Ricky Tata. I have not... I'm going to say I have effectively not played Coup because... So all I can say is I tried to play it with J2 player and came to the conclusion that although the box says you can play it two player, you really, really, really shouldn't. (laughs) But I have not had the chance to play it with more than two. (laughs) Oh, yeah... I've mostly played it at five or six, and I think that's where it really shines because it very much becomes a politics and bluffing game of can I get away with claiming to have this role? But then also, oh, I see, 
uh, Chris over there has got enough to coo somebody. Can I convince him to coo Mike instead of cooing me? (laughs) Okay, so that was was coo from Ricky Tata and Indie Boards and Cards. Up next is Thunderstone Numenera. Now, okay, here's the thing. Thunderstone Numenera is a standalone Thunderstone thing. I'm not going to explain to you again how Thunderstone works. I mean, I'm sorry. If you don't know how Thunderstone works, go on strangeassembly.com. I've written multiple reviews of standalone Thunderstone things where I just go look at the Thunderstone Advance review, and I'm going to assume in this conversation that you generally know how Thunderstone works. So Thunderstone Numenera is, shockingly, the game of Thunderstone, but set in the the world of, of Numenera, uh, which is a recently produced RPG setting from Monty Cook. I kickstarted that, so you also can go on strangeassembly.com and read a written review of the RPG. So it's this sort of weird mix of future and past. It's set in the far future where civilizations have risen and fallen, so the sort of everyday technology is is medieval, but then there's a lot of leftover technological stuff from before. So you have fantasy things that are, you know, wizard-ish and magic item-ish, but instead of your magic item being, you know, an actual magical item, it's some technological doodad from ages past that you don't really have any idea how it works. I think it's, was it the uh, Arthur Clarke quote that like any sufficiently sufficiently advanced advanced technology technology is indistinguishable from magic? Yeah. Uh, I think that's kind of the... The idea behind it, yeah. Yeah. So so you're, you're taking that into... Now, Thunderstone was traditionally a more standard fantasy thing, so it's got some things that don't mesh perfectly with uh, the the Numenera theme. I mean, you're still literally going into a dungeon. I guess you could re-theme it and call it by something in the, the Numenera thing. So, obviously, thematically, the, the characters are named after the way that Numenera's system works. So, like, you have... You'll, you'll have, like, Crafty, and then you'll have Crafty, and then the level 2 is Crafty Jack, and then the level 3 is, I, I don't know, Nimble Crafty Jack, or also... I, you know, the way that they sort of name your characters in uh, in Numenera, where everybody is either a Jack or a Nano or a Glaive, I think is the fighter-like guy, but then you have a, sort of this adjective at the beginning, and and then there's Numenera-themed versions of villagers and weapons and, and spells. So what's mechanically different about it is first settings are back, and so you have these big, pretty, oversized setting cards that are different locations in the world of Numenera. And what those tend to do is they'll, they'll, you know, they'll impose some condition on the game. And they also, the game comes with a D20. And so the settings will require you to roll a D20 sometimes to find out some, some random thing. Uh, I do like, I like the settings. I think that things like the settings add replay value to Thunderstone, or, or things like settings that replay value to, to a lot of games, because they make each game a little bit more different, and so I think that that helps with that. Uh, they also have a different way of what to do with extra experience. Once you get into Thunderstone Advance, 
you rack up a lot more experience than you did in the original Thunderstone. And so, to some extent, the game needs to give you something to do with it as you're getting to a point where you're not really going to the village and leveling up that much. You're just going into the dungeon and thrashing monsters more. And so what they did in Thunderstone Advance was that you had the familiars, which were these, like, the first time you defeated a monster, you got this little familiar, and then you could, every once in a while, like, based on just the number of XP you had sitting there, you could use its abilities. There are no familiars in in Numenera, which is possibly for the best. I mean, familiars weren't bad, but they were hard to remember. Even playing with people who had played Thunderstone a bunch, you would, you would just never remember that you had the familiar sitting there. Or you'd start the game and nobody would remember to actually take their familiar. I don't know why they were so hard to remember. Uh, right, three turns later, it's like, oh yeah, I should have gotten a familiar. Yeah. Thunderstone Numenera does something different. The experience tokens are colored. There's red ones and blue ones and, and so forth. And what you can do is once per turn, you can discard an experience token for an effect and the effect that you get depends on the the color of the token, and they thematically tie this in. You know, they give them a name uh, that that fits in with Numenera. But you know, you're discarding an experience token for an effect, and that could be draw a card, that could be add a gold, that could be add a magical attack, that could be add a physical attack. And I think that's a, a very nice thing, uh, a nice way to deal with the extra experience. The one downside of it is that. I would like it if there had come with reference cards, because you really want to have a reference card in front of you to tell you what it is that the different colors do. As it was, you kept having a lot of, now, what what did my blue ones do again? But the other nice thing, completely random, I guess, that they, they do with that is, because it's it's random which color of token you get, they had to include a bag. So I actually now have a nice uh, felt bag that I can use with Thunderstone generally to store the experience tokens in, which is I know silly, but nice, I think. It's a nice feature. So so for as far as Thunderstone Numenera goes, if you like Thunderstone, I think you'll still like Thunderstone Numenera. I think it, it it's a full size set. You can play it standalone. Uh, I still like Thunderstone and I mean and it's really a Thunderstone Advance at this point, which is definitely better than that base thunderstone was. I mean, I like base thunderstone, but there was some clunkiness in it that they scrubbed off for for thunderstone advance. I, I don't know if I could really say necessarily whether my base thunderstone advance or thunderstone numenera is better. It may just depend on which set of artwork and characters you find more interesting. Base thunderstone advance might be a little bit more. I, I don't know. I don't know if entry level friendly is the same. I mean, it's not like the the starter kit for thunderstone where it's it's clearly a simplified selection of monsters, but Anyhow, but I think it, it, you know, if you, if you like deck builders and you, you haven't tried it out, I still think Thunderstone is, is worth playing as long as you're not completely fixated on the, I have no prep time mindlessness of something like the, the cryptozoic deck builders or, or Ascension. But that is Thunderstone. Numenera, the original game design was by, for Thunderstone was by Mike Elliott. Numenera is by Monty Cook. And the the game is was published by uh, Alderac Entertainment Group. And actually, the Thunderstone Numenera was originally activated by a Kickstarter stretch goal within the Numenera Kickstarter. And I believe that Jay, you have next for us another game that was not originally on Kickstarter, but did have a Kickstarter uh, recently. Right. So 
I got Snowdonia, I got from a Kickstarter. I think it was a Kickstarter just to get their second printing out. It wasn't because the game had already been out before. It's another one by Indie Board and, Ga- Board and Cards, the same that did Coup and The Resistance, designed by to- Tony Boydell. It's a worker placement game where basically your workers are workers for the trains. They are trying to excavate mountains in, I think it's Wales, is where the Snowdonia Mountains are. And basically through the course of the game, you excavate out the room for all the track and lay out all the track and build stations. And in doing so, you score victory points. You can also get yourself a a train that you can use then use to bus in more workers who otherwise are just hanging out at the pub. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. And that is basically you are, you are going on one specific mountain. The mountain is Snowden, which I will not try to pronounce the real name. And yes, it's, it's a Welsh, it's in the Welsh mountains. Right. That's that's, That's what I thought I remembered. And so, I mean, one of the effects since it is in the Welsh, countryside the weather plays an important part on how the game plays where if it's bright and sunny it becomes much easier to dig and lay track whereas if it's rainy it's more difficult to do those and if it's foggy you just can't you know work on the track at all that turn you have to do other tasks you also have contract cards that you can work towards that are going to be a whole lot of your victory points but they also are like once per turn bonuses in, during the game. As I said, it's, it's worker placement. So you've got, there's six actions with varying numbers of spots that can be taken based on how many people are playing. You play all your workers and then you resolve all the actions in order. So there's like get resources, lay track, build buildings. Most most of these are, you know, getting you victory points towards the end of the game. I, I will say this is one that has a lot of little bits. So, for instance, a large part of the game is tunneling, is removing rubble so that you can lay track or build stations. And there's something like a hundred little square brown cubes to represent all the little pieces of rubble you have to remove. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think Snowdonia is interesting because it has this everybody is working on this one railway line, and and as the game goes on, the railway will get built if you do nothing. Yeah. Right, so, it, yeah, it, it pushes out you, and now, yeah, the, right, the stages are, first first the uh, the track has to be excavated, then you have to lay the track down, then you have to build a station, and... You're kind of trying to take ownership of those individual parts as it goes along, but the game can also just push ahead. And once once the game, you know, if the game starts laying the track down, nobody's getting the points for that. I, I think, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah, you, you recall correctly. So yeah, you you start by excavating out both the stations and the track cards, and then you build the track and you build the stations. And in doing those actions, you put ownership markers saying, "Hey." I built this at the end of the game, I get victory points for it. But there's also, at the end of the turn, to replenish the resource stock, you're pulling randomly out of a bag, and some of those, instead of being resources, are events. And basically the events 
force the building just along the way with nobody getting points for it because the the game ends basically when the last piece of track is ra- is laid lane laid one of those three <laughs> um so you do get to a certain you do get to a certain point where if nobody is really advancing the game just sort of finishes it off for you you can't just stall out completely yeah I have played Snowdonia, although I don't... So did you just get the Kickstarter version, Jay? Yeah, I got the Kickstarter version. Okay, I so now I must have played the first edition then, because I played it earlier this year. I liked it. I think it, it does do some different things. The one thing that I would note is that I think how much you like it might depend on how constrained you like your worker placement games to feel. And now... Agricola is extremely popular, so I know that there are a lot of people who like their worker placement games to feel very constrained. But you will definitely, every turn in Snowdonia, feel like there are four things that you want to do, and you can only do two of them. And right. Yeah, because, I mean, you, you only have two workers, and then one of the events lets you go and buy a train, and once you have a train, you can pay one of the resources to go get your third worker for the turn, and that's that's it. It's three, and one of them you have to pay for every time you want to use them. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's right. It's a coal, which I think is the that's all the it's the rarest for. of the resources, and it's the, it's the rarest of the resources, and that's the only use for it is to bus in new workers. I guess, like a lot of of good euros, there's a, a variety of different ways that you can approach it. I mean, you can you can focus on getting. On trying to dig rubble out and and claim ownership of that, you can focus on turning your resources into. There's like two levels of resources. There's like raw resources you can get, and then you can turn that into to like steel or stone, which then lets you build stations or lay tracks and get you like that. You can just try to push your surveyor out around at the edge of the board, and and like a lot of these things, you know, it can depend on. You've got you've got variants like oh it if you only put a little bit in the surveyor it's not a lot but if you go all the way around with the surveyor it can be a ton but you kind of have to dedicate to that early and is that going to be the right path and if you're the first one to get to a specific spot you're going to get more points and and then also what you're going to do can be substantially influenced by which contracts you get early on. Like, if you know that every rubble that you're sitting on is going to be worth victory points, well, that really disincentivizes you to convert your rubble to stone and build stations, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, that was... One of the complaints I heard the first time I played this with my group was I went for a dig-dig-dig strategy, so I got the lion's share of the rubble, which also came meant that I was the only one who was scoring contracts that involved rubble. So you do actually have to do some amount of excavating if you want those points. Yes, yes. That is Snowdonia by Tony Boydell and, again, by Indie Boards and Cards. The last thing we've got on the menu for you today is Spirium, designed by William Athia and from Asmodi. That came out this year. Thematically, it's set in Victorian England as modified by the discovery of the mineral called spirium, which 
you know, revolution is in gum. Well, yes. <laughs> uh, thank you, Jay. Uh, it, always. <laughs> it, it revolutionizes industry and, uh, gives the place a, not a steampunk feel necessarily, but a sort of, I, I mean, I guess it, it, it feels steampunkish to me because theoretically it's, it's like more advanced Victorian. Although I will go and say in advance that you will not in any way, shape, or form feel this theme in the game. So let's not worry about that. The central sort of, I think, different mechanic about Spirium is that every round, the game lasts six turns, and every one of these turns, there are nine cards placed out in a, a square. And... When you are assigning, and there are, there are like sort of two stages to the to the turn, and when you're assigning your workers, you are putting them in between the nine different segments of the square, and then when you take the action, it is affected by how many other people are are piling on. So it is expensive to. When you then later pick up your worker, if a bunch of other people are still surrounding it, so there's a lot of planning of like, what's the best thing I can do that I don't have to pay through the nose for, and but also you don't want to get so I you know you don't want to get left with your guys stranded and not able to take an action at all. So you know there's there's a sort of some timing questions about when's the right time to pick up. You don't want to pay through the nose, but you don't want to get cut off, and so. Uh, over the course of the game, when, when the, what these tiles do is some of them give you one-shot effects, uh, get some spirium, get some money, increase your residence level. Uh, residence uh, gives you an income stream and gets you some victory points at the end. You can buy buildings, and those go into a little, I don't know if a tableau is overstating it, but a little row uh, of workers. And then once you have those buildings out, the actions on your turn might you might be able to assign a worker to a building or some of the buildings just work automatically and it might be turn a spirium into money or turn spirium into sort of turn money into spirium or turn spirium into victory points or or whatever and it might be very important cards called patents which will give you a a permanent boost throughout the game so they're they're very handy if you get them there's three different decks to pull out the cards so there's an the a deck is turns 1 through 3 the b deck is turns 4 through 5 the c deck is turn six. The first time you play, you might you might want to look at what's in the C deck. I, I remember playing the first time and getting to the end and being surprised at the sort of things that weren't in there. It didn't it it, it didn't just necessarily do the same build up where like everything gets bigger and bigger like you sometimes get in these games. So at the end, you're trying to maximize and turn everything into victory points. I thought that Spirium was, I guess, solid but not amazing. I had fun playing it. I would happily play it again. I'm not, but I'm not rushing out to play it. And I think that you have not, you haven't had the chance to play this one, right, Jay? I've not, no. Okay. So that is Spirium from Asmodi and designed by William Atia. And I think that that is not, I think. And that's all the games that we have for you today. I know it's been a while since we had a general gaming podcast. So if you're one of a, 
the people who is not into the CCGs and just gets our occasional episode that doesn't touch on any CCG or LCG. I'm sorry, it's it's been a little bit. I think that our next one will be coming sooner because I know that, Jay, you've got some other new Kickstarter things like, uh, is it Twin Tin Bots? Yeah, I've got t- Tin Twin Bots and Euphoria and uh, the, uh, the Agents, all of which I've gotten... I've played maybe once, but not, I've just not played nearly enough to talk about. Yeah, Jay and I both kickstarted Euphoria, and I know we were, uh, at least I think we were both pretty excited about that coming in the mail yes. this week. So this week being the week before Christmas, because who knows how long it'll take me to edit this and post it up. <laughs> but and then hopefully we will get that and some of these other things to the table and I think we'll be back soon, and certainly much faster than than the gap between this and the last General Gaming Podcast to get you some takes on those. And then also probably in January, a sort of look back at 2013. Is it as weak a year for gaming as compared to, I don't know, was 2013 a weak year for gaming, or was 2012 just amazingly good? I think 2012 may have just been that good. So 2013 feels like it's a little weak. Yeah, I think 2013 has been a fine year. It's just you're comparing it to an amazing year before. The the tyranny of, of the comparison. Yeah, know. pretty much. But for Jay Earl, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. You can check out more of Strange Assembly by visiting us at strangeassembly.com or by subscribing to the Strange Assembly podcast on iTunes. We always like to hear from you. You can email me directly at chris at strangeassembly.com or check us out at facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. But until then, never stop gaming.